The singing of the doxology by the PCC student body begins Pensacola Christian College Chapel. At each chapel service, students have an opportunity to receive spiritual exhortation and enrichment during a time of music and meditation on God's Word. This podcast shares selected recent chapel messages from guest speakers, faculty, and staff. Welcome to the PCC Chapel Podcast. Would you take your Bible and find 1 Peter chapter 3 this morning? 1 Peter chapter 3, and we'll direct our attention to verse 15 in just a moment. 1 Peter chapter 3. It was Swiss theologian Emil Bruner who made this statement, what oxygen is to the lungs, hope is to the meaning of life. Hope is truly intrinsic to who we are. In fact, science is finding that out. In 2021, the Arizona State University Center for the Advanced Study of the Practice of Hope completed research on the science of hope and its impact. They found measurable quantitative data to show how hope is important to our well-being. From the data, they determined that hopeful athletes perform better on the field, cope better with injuries, and have greater mental adjustment when situations change. They discovered that the elderly who felt hopeless were more than twice as likely to die during the study follow-up period than those who were more hopeful. Here's something that's applicable to all of us here. They found that college kids who were hopeful had higher GPAs and were more likely to graduate. Dr. Shane Shane Lopez, a noted psychologist who is regarded as as the leading researcher on hope, made this claim. He says that hope isn't just an emotion. Hope is essential to life. Well, today I don't want to talk to you about hope from a scientific perspective, but I prefer to talk to you from the scriptural perspective. So our focus will be in 1 Peter. Now, if Paul was the apostle of faith and John was the apostle of love, then Peter is the apostle of hope. I submit to you that the key word of the first epistle of Peter is the word hope. It's found in verse number 15 where he addresses the early Christian believers who were facing tremendous persecution and challenges in maintaining their faith and values in a hostile society and, quite honestly, a hopeless situation. The greater context of 1 Peter 3 verse 15 is found in suffering that they were experiencing in three realms. They were experiencing suffering from authority. We would refer to it as government. Peter says in 1 Peter 2 verses 13 and following to to be in submission, be under the authority, those governmental leaders that are leading the nation. And I remind you, when Peter is writing this, Nero was Caesar. Nero was the one who martyred Christians, throwing them to wild dogs and to lions and nailed them to crosses in his gardens and used them as burning torches, burning Christians alive as torches for his parties. And Peter says to those Christians, you be in submission to them under that time of harsh authority. He uses the idea of economy. He speaks of work. In the 21st century context, it would be in 1 Peter 2 verse 18, he says, employees, be in subjection to your employers. And then he goes a step further and says, not only to the good, but also to the bad, the bad boss that's hard to work for, the person that's hard to deal with. 
And then he moves to, from the authority and from economy, but he then begins to speak of the family in chapter 3. And he starts with the wife, and he says, now wife, you make sure you understand and respect the leadership of the husband in the home, even the unbelieving husband. And he goes a step further, and he says that, wife, you will win your unbelieving husband not by the words that you speak, the arguments that you offer, but by the life, the conduct that you live before him. And then after Peter goes through all of those various realms of suffering that these Christians are experiencing, he asks a question in verse number 13. And who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? But but if you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation, your good conduct in Christ." After wrapping up those various realms, Peter says, don't be afraid of their intimidation, verse 14. Don't be afraid of their terror and be agitated by that terror. Then he says, be prepared for their interrogation. They're going to ask you the reason of your hope, and don't be fearful of their insinuation. They're going to say that your good is evil, but you have a good conscience knowing that it's not. Doesn't that sound like a culture in which we somewhat live today? that good is now being called evil, that there is oftentimes the spirit of intimidation towards those who believe. There's an insinuation that, that what we do is actually evil because we have biblical values. I want to focus on verse 15 on the power of resilient hope. And there's really three elements that are found in verse 15 that resilient hope is necessary for the Christian to continually to pursue. Here's the first element. The element of enthusiasm. Verse 15 begins with, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Underline in your Bible that phrase, Lord God in your hearts. You say, Dr. Lance, why are you using the word enthusiasm? Because the word enthusiasm in our context, you think that's a cheerleader on the sidelines of a football game, or you think it's a Pollyanna, positive, optimistic person all the time. But enthusiasm is actually a Greek concept. The word enthusiasm comes from the Greek term enthusiasmos. And the most simplest definition of enthusiasmos is this, God in you. The term was closely associated with the religious and spiritual experiences of those Greeks in the classical culture. They often would be, in their minds, possessed or inspired by a divine presence. They experienced enthusiasm, enthusiasmos, because they were filled with God, and they could convey a message that could only come from God. Peter uses this concept again in this same epistle. If you look in 1 Peter 4, verse number 11, he makes this reference. He says that if any man speak, let him speak as of the oracles of God. The word oracle is the Greek word logion. It's the reference to that person who would receive the divine message in that enthusiasmos, in that enthusiasm of the moment. The most noted oracle would be the Oracle of Delphi. It's in ancient Greece. It's located between two peaks on Mount Parnassus. I've had the honor to visit there twice. It's a beautiful site. There at 
at Delphi was the temple of Apollo. And the oracle that would be located in the temple of Apollo would be called a Pythia. And people of authority, people of, uh, of average means would come to this temple to seek knowledge from, from the God, from the God Apollo. People who were generals going off to war would often consult with the Pythia to ask for direction and confirmation. Leaders of state would often ask for uh, reason and direction as they were making decisions. They would all come to this particular temple to receive an oracle, a word from God. What archaeologists have found, though, is interesting. When that Pythia would speak, she would often begin to speak. It was always a female, a priestess of the temple. She was usually a teenager and, and always a virgin. When she would begin to speak, she would begin to laugh and, and giggle and, and just be out of her mind in some kind of a wild trance. And archaeologists have found that the Temple of Apollo was actually built over a rift, over a chasm chasm. And in that chasm, there was hydrocarbon gases that would be filtered up into the temple, into the small room where the Pythia would be located. And literally when she was giggling and when she was speaking and giving information to generals and leaders, she was high as a kite was basically what she was. And as a result, they made decisions about war. They made decisions about state and legal processes. They made decisions in every form through this particular means of enthusiasmos and the oracle who speaks. Now, that would be, that, that, that would be in pagan mysticism. Peter co-ops that word for a moment and he begins to say, you're not following a pagan god. There's no mysticism involved with this, but you do have God in you. And God in you should result in a resilient hope. If biblical enthusiasm is God in us, and it's an element of a, of a resilient hope, what does that do for us? Well, number one, when you have that enthusiasm, God in you, number one, it determines your purpose. Did you notice what he said? Sanctify the Lord God. Set God apart in your heart so that there is no other God before him. I won't allow my career to go first. I won't allow money to be first in my life. I won't allow a relationship to be first in my life. God is first. And God is not just prominent. God is preeminent. I sanctify God as my purpose for living. What does that mean? What does that resilient hope do? It gives you a purpose, but not only does it determine your purpose, it develops your passion. He says, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Do you notice it didn't say sanctify God in your head? It says sanctify the Lord God in your heart. I say this every year at the beginning of the semester, and I say it again because it bears repeating. Pensacola Christian College can train you and give you facts and experience and information to fill your mind, to prepare you for a career. We can train you in character through comprehensive education and, and, the, and the processes that we have. But only you can develop a passion for what God has called you to do. And the only way you develop that passion is in the fact that you recognize your purpose is first to glorify God. 
Write these verses in your note, for, notes. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. Whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. That is your purpose. You are to glorify God. Colossians 3, verse 23. Whatsoever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord. That's your passion. Now, the world says, pursue your passion and you'll find your purpose. But God says that's wrong. Pursue your purpose, glorify God, and I will give you your passion. You see, your purpose is your meaning in life. Your passion is your motivation for living. And your passion doesn't determine your purpose, but your purpose will drive your passion. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Reminds me of a verse in the book of Daniel. You know this verse, Daniel 1 verse 8, but Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's meat. Daniel, in Daniel 1, was much like you, about your age, taken from his homeland and placed in Babylon. And the Babylonian culture attempted to rob him of his heritage and his identity. They robbed him of his heritage by changing his name. The name Daniel in Hebrew means God is my judge. They changed his name to Belteshazzar, which means Baal protects the king. They robbed him of his identity. They emasculated him. They, they made him a eunuch, and therefore he had no gender moving forward. But despite what happened to him, his purpose and his passion was still within. He purposed in his heart. Daniel decided from the depths of his heart to abstain from consuming the king's meat. And what I find interesting is this, that it wasn't the name change or the mutilation of his body that was the line in the sand for him. He, he drew the line in the sand and purposed in his heart, I will not defile myself with the king's meat. Daniel is a testament that in the middle of a pagan, godless culture, no matter what happens to you, God is in you and gives you purpose and passion to remain faithful. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. The first element of resilient hope is enthusiasm. The second element is expression. Look again at verse 15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope. There's two aspects of that expression. First of all, I want you to notice that it's a responsive explanation. Uh, Peter says, be ready. It has the idea of being prepared. Already have the answer formulated in your mind. Be ready always, every time, any time, invariably, you are ready to give an explanation. Be ready to give an answer. That word answer is the Greek word apologia. It's where we get our English word apologetics. Be ready to give a defense. No, don't be defensive, but be ready to give a defense of the hope that's within. It's first a responsive explanation. Secondly, it is a reasoned exchange. He, he says, be ready to give an answer to every man. You know what that means? Every human being. We are required to be unprejudiced in our distribution of the answer that we have. And let's be honest, in the culture in which we live, there are people that don't look like us. They don't have the same worldview that we have. They have different values, if no values at all. There are people that are completely antithetical to who we are. But just because we may not like who they are or what they're doing or where they are, we still have a responsibility to be ready to give them the answer when they ask. To every man that asked, give the reason. That, that word reason 
is the Greek word where we get our English word logic from. Paul uses it in first, or excuse me, in Romans chapter 12 when he says that your body should be presented as a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable, your logical service. If God would die for you, you should live for him. It only stands to reason that you would do that. And here's the thing, even in our response to an unbelieving world, it requires that we be reasoned in our response. Now, for some reason, we think when we become Christians, we, 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 we check out our brains. But faith and reason can go together. I remind you that Isaiah said in Isaiah 1 verse number 18, Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. So he says in the expression of your hope, make sure that it's a responsive explanation with a reasoned exchange. Here is the problem. The church, modern Christianity, often attempts to answer questions the culture is not even asking. And the culture that is asking questions, we ignore those questions. The problem is we're too busy telling the culture what we believe rather than why we believe it. You see, what you believe is rooted in your faith. Why you believe is reflected in your hope. And what Peter is saying here in verse 15 is this, be ready to give an answer to a skeptical world, focusing on the why, not the what. Now make no mistake, the what is important. You need to know what doctrine you believe. You need to know rock solid rooted in your faith. But the world doesn't care about those matters. They're concerned about the why of your belief. In his book entitled Start With Why, Simon Sinek, one of my favorite secular authors, shares a story of a laundry detergent company that built its, built its marketing strategy on the what of the product rather than the why of the consumer. They, they marketed their product promoting the ability of what the laundry detergent would do. It makes whites whiter and brights brighter. They focus solely on that what aspect and fail to understand the why behind customer behavior and the desire for clean clothes. It led to this flawed business and marketing strategy to the point that they were at the bottom rung of the market share of laundry detergent. But their laundry detergent, it made whiters, whites whiter and brights brighter, but it was filled with bleach and heavy chemicals. The what was right. We want our whites white, and we want our brights bright, brighter brights, and we want our clothes clean. But they didn't understand the why. Until some marketer researcher brought in consumers with the competitor's detergent, and they observed them. And they noticed what happens when someone takes the laundry out of the dryer. The first thing they do not do is hold it up and say, look at how white these whites are. Look at how bright these brights are. The first thing a person does when they take it out of the dryer is they smell it. And they recognize as important as it was to have the proper proprietary formula to make sure the whites are white and the brights are bright, it means nothing if the laundry doesn't smell fresh. You see, we should have the purest, most orthodox theology we possibly can. But honestly, the culture is not interested if it lacks the fresh aroma of hope. By and large, Christian evangelicalism tends to focus on the what of our faith in relationship to the culture and doesn't consider the why of their asking. Do you know why the skeptic and unbeliever would ask the reason of your hope? It's not that they're asking for your doctrinal statement. 
They want to know how you're surviving through the hard times you've been through. They want to know how you've been resilient in dealing with difficulty. They're not asking for your position on soteriology and superlapsarianism. They could care less about your eschatological position on pre versus post millennialism. They're asking you why, because their marriage is falling apart and they just need a sense of hope. They ask why, because their hearts are broken. And they're in the depths of despair, and they've seen you go through those things. And they they think to themselves, how do they cope? What is that hope that's within? (laughs) Their past haunts them, and their future taunts them. And they see you, perhaps, who has a past. But by the grace of God, you have a future. And now hope. They're asking not the what answer. They're not asking for your doctrinal statement. When they ask why, why do you have that hope? They're asking for your testimony. We've been talking today and even today about, or yesterday and today about Christian service. And you may be here today and you feel as if I'm just not qualified. I'm not knowledgeable enough to be able to explain, explain salvation to an unbeliever. But can I tell you the, the most effective tool that you have is your testimony, your story. Read the narratives of the gospel and you find that it's filled with stories of lives changed and the impact of those changed lives. John 9, think of the blind man who Jesus touched with a little bit of mud and gave him his sight. The Pharisees came and began to ask to interrogate that man who was formerly blind. They asked him, do you think that this man is the son of God? Do you think that he's a prophet? And all he said was this, and it was a brilliant answer. He essentially said, this is my story. I once was blind, but now I see. Think of the woman at the well. She was married five times and now living with a sixth man. In the culture where she lived, she was an outcast. She was someone no one would have anything to do with. And she was so so ashamed of her life that she avoided the crowd. And in doing so, when she would gather water for her home, she wouldn't go in the morning or the evening as the normal pace of the day and the cooler times of the day. She went at the noon hour when it was hottest with the sun beating down because no one would gather water at the hottest time of day. But Jesus said, I must needs go to Samaria. And Jesus came and met her where she was. And there in the exchange of conversation, he shared with her the water of life from an eternal well, from Jesus Christ. And the Bible says her life was so changed that she abandoned her water pot that she thought was so important in that moment. And she ran back to the very people she was avoiding. And she made this statement, come see a man who told me everything I've done. And the people of Samaria came to Christ. That's the expression of hope. That no matter what your past may be, no matter what problem you're facing, no matter what pain is overwhelming you, you can share the testimony of God's grace and how he brought you through. The elements of resilient hope are enthusiasm, expression, and thirdly, expectation. He says again in verse number 15, be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope, circle that word hope, the reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Two thoughts on this matter of expectation. That hopeful expectation is first an internal conviction, that hope that is in you. It has nothing to do with the surroundings and the situation you find yourself in. 
It is a hope that is in you. The world may be crumbling around you. The world may be falling apart, but there is something in you that says there is more ahead. But it's not only an internal conviction, it is an external confidence. He says the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. The word meekness has the idea of power under control. The word fear is a sense of respect or reverence. He says as you are facing a culture that is opposed to you, be ready to share the reason of your expectation and hope based on what's on the inside that impacts how you share it on the outside. Again, I'll point out to you, did you notice that Peter did not say, give the reason for your faith? He said, give the reason of your hope. He does mention faith in this epistle. Chapter 1, he talks about our faith as being tried. He says, there is the trial of your faith. And while our faith is tested and tried, it is our hope that compels us to persevere. Can I put it this way? Faith is present tense. Hope is always focused on the future. And in a world that is plagued with chaos and division and poverty and suffering, the Christian who lives by faith with a hope that there is more to this life than this life can have a hope that's focused on eternity, can have a hope that's focused on sovereignty, that God works all things together for our good and his glory. During a brutal study at Harvard University in the 1950s, Dr. Kurt Richter placed rats in a pool of water to test how long they could tread water. On average, those rats, when they were placed in the pool of water, would essentially tread water for roughly 15 minutes and they would give up. But right before they gave up due to exhaustion, those researchers would, would pluck those rats out of the water and dry them off and, and let them rest for a few minutes and then throw them right back into the water for a second round. In the second try, how long do you think they lasted? Just remember, they, they just swum for, to failure for approximately 15 minutes. How long do you think they, that, that second time they were able to swim? Another 15 minutes? Another 10 minutes? Another five minutes? Dr. Richter in his study found out it was not that amount of time. It was actually 60 hours. 60 hours of swimming after failure. Dr. Richter came to the conclusion that since the rats expected that they would eventually be rescued, they pushed their bodies past what they previously thought was impossible. Consider this, students. If hope can cause exhausted rats to swim that long looking for hope from a cold, uncaring scientist, what could an unyielding hope in a loving God who, you're, who is your father, what can that hope do for you? That is the power of resilient hope. You've been listening to a message from Pensacola Christian College Chapel. You're welcome to pass this sermon along to others. Please don't charge for it or alter it without written permission from Pensacola Christian College. For additional information about PCC, visit us online at pcci.edu. Pensacola Christian College, empowering Christian leaders to influence the world for Christ.